I trust that you have. Injustice in this life is quite common, and it takes many different forms. So in the midst of your injustice, did you turn to anyone? And how did they respond? In times of injustice, I imagine you may choose to remain silent. Maybe you were wronged, and it has been kept a secret. Only you and the perpetrator are aware of what has happened. Maybe you did not have the voice, metaphorically speaking, to speak. Maybe you did not know who to speak to. You did not know a person who would have ears to hear what it is you have to say. So you remain silent, not sure how to speak up or who will listen up. Or maybe you decide to speak, but then you are silenced. Maybe you've actually been told to be silent. Or maybe you've stayed silent for fear that no one would believe you. Perhaps you tried to tell someone, but it seemed they, they didn't care. It's as though the person didn't have a heart for you or for your concern, and they were telling you to shut up. Or perhaps in your time of injustice, you chose to speak, and here you were met with a person who heard you, who believed you. This listening person was eager to help, but there was nothing they could do about your situation. The person had ears to hear and a heart that cares, but did not have the strength to help. They didn't have the power to change the situation or to bring justice. They didn't have the arms and legs to, to pick up your cause and to run with it. Justice in this life is hard to come by. Well, this morning in our passage, we read a story of justice. Justice brought to a great oppressor, the Assyrian Empire. At the height of the Assyrian Empire, they exercised great cruelty on all of their opponents. And while their oppression was known, little could be said or done to challenge them. Israel was one of their opponents. The northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And there were many others in the path of Assyria's destruction. But the difference between Israel and others that Assyria attacked is that Israel had God as their avenger. God knew the opposition of his people, and he could do something about it. And he was about to bring justice. What we read in Nahum 2 is God's justice for his people and vengeance towards his enemies. We read a, a vivid narrative of Assyria's destruction. And as we read through this passage, you'll notice a progressive battle scene unfold, all ultimately at the hands of God. 
So you'll remember in our time together last week in Nahum 1 that Nahum is a prophecy. And Nineveh's destruction that's recorded here in chapter 2 had not yet happened at the time in which it was written. It was being foretold. It would not come to pass for another 100 years. But not only is Nahum a prophecy, it is a poem. We read battle poetry here. Nahum 2 is filled with poetic imagery of battle action and plundering and devastation. This was justice against Assyria. You could say that Nahum 2 is poetic justice for Assyria in two senses of the word or the phrase. First, using the words of poetry, Nineveh is told of their coming judgment, which would be justice for the nations that they oppressed, Israel in particular. But in the second sense of the phrase, poetic justice, Nahum 2, Nineveh is now on the receiving end of the pillaging and the plundering that they had given out so many times prior. At any rate, all this happens at the hand of God. God is personally and powerfully involved with the justice of his people. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. So I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Nahum 2. If you're using the Pew Bibles there in front of you, you'll find this on page, page 782. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, we'd encourage you to take that home with you, a, a chance to read about God and his plans for your life for the world in which we live, to have a greater understanding of his purposes, to bring glory to himself and, and good to those who know him. So let's take up this Bible together now and see what God has for us. Reading Nahum 2, starting in verse 1. The scatterer has come against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength, for the Lord is recording, restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? 
the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. We mentioned that justice is hard to come by. And in this passage, justice is served. And while this is a poem of, of Nineveh's destruction, the capital city of, Syria, of Assyria, God is the main character. This, this passage captures a vivid picture of God's vengeance towards the wicked. So what I want us to consider this morning is two aspects of God's vengeance. So for the note-takers among us, that will be the two points of our sermon. First, the Lord's vengeance on the wicked is personal. I'm going to give you one at this point. The Lord's vengeance on the wicked is personal. So we're going to see this in verses 1 and 2, a little bit in 5 and 7, and then in verses 10 through 13. So I'll highlight those as we go. Beginning with verse 1, which begins with the scatterer. So in the immediate action of Nahum 2, the scatterer is a coalition of mighty men that are mentioned in verse 3. These are mighty men who have been collected by God, an attacking army. And this coming of the scatterer is the Lord's doing. Ultimately, it is the Lord who is the scatterer, the Lord who has come against Assyria. So already in Nahum, we've seen in chapter 1 that the Lord is a warrior. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Chapter 1, verse 8, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So the scatterer, the Lord, has come against you, Nineveh. Nineveh is an enemy, an adversary of God, and now is the object of the vengeance and the wrath of God. Well, the next verse of chapter 2, verse 2, also gives us a clue about God's personal vengeance. It says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. The Lord is this personal name, this covenant name for God. The Lord is personally involved, and he is in relationship with his people. Here he is identifying with his people. He's committed to them. He's connected to them. He's going to carry up their cause. So we see there in verse 2, his personal investment. He, he fights for Israel, the first half of verse 2, and then he's going to fight against Israel's enemies, plunder, the second half of verse 2. So if there's any confusion then about the personal nature of God's vengeance against the wicked, it's made abundantly clear in verse 13. Verse 13, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
So to God, the, the vengeance of the wicked is personal. He's personally involved. Now, if there's any questions still, I want to point out that then God gets personal. So he's personally involved, and, and now he's going he's gonna to get personal. So it's as though he's be going to engage now in a psychological battle, a battle of the mind. So those of us who have been maybe involved with, with athletics, we understand that there is kind of the, the competition that happens between the lines, the actual game that's played out physically. And then there's also the competition that happens between the ears, the battle of the mind. And one of the tactics in athletics is certainly your physical play, but also your ability to play the person's mind, to get into their head. And we see God do this here as he's prophesying what he is going to do to the Assyrians. Maybe I'll make one other illustration for us. Um, I played basketball as part of my upbringing and would sometimes compete against a superior opponent. Very rarely, but sometimes a superior opponent. And one of his tactics would be to tell me exactly what he's about to do, knowing I could do nothing to interfere, nothing to get in the way. And then he would go on and do that move and make that shot at the place he said he would, all the while talking to me along the way. There's a battle of the mind going on. Trash talk. Well, what we see here in, in Nineveh, uh, excuse me, in Nahum chapter 2, is an example of godly trash talk. God, through Nahum, is going to tell Nineveh what he's about to do. He talks to them as he does it, and then he even taunts them after the fact. So let's look at this together. Verse 1, the battle has begun. He tells them what he's going to do. The scatterer has come against you. Still in verse 1, he tells them what they need to do. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. As though that's going to make any difference against the divinely ordered destruction. There's some, some subtle sarcasm going on here. The Lord knows that battle against him is going to be, it's going to be futile. Ultimately, it's going to be fatal, the death, the destruction of Nineveh. So that's the beginning as the battle begins. And then as the battle progresses, look at verse 5. It says, he, the commander, the scatterer, remembers his officers. Now, because this is poetry, there can be different interpretations of what's happening in this passage, who it is that is remembering. Perhaps it is, it is uh, Nineveh under attack, and they are remembering the different resources that they have at the, their disposal as they are kind of in a, in a fray, trying to fend off the attack. 
But another understanding of what's happening here, the he remembers his officers, speaks of the Lord, the scatterer, his personal involvement in the fight. It's as though he is so engrossed in what's happening, observing the destruction of Nineveh, and then he remembers that he has enlisted the help of these officers to carry out this destruction. And so he's frankly enjoying justice being carried out in front of him. But he remembers the officers and he helps them along. He's all in, he's personally involved. Verse seven, then God tells Nineveh what has happened to them. In the ESV, it reads, the, the mistress is stripped. She is carried away. The NIV renders the phrase this way. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. So a mistress being a, a picture of the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, being defeated, being carried away. Again, the, the NIV, it is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. It's as though in the midst of the battle, the verdict has already been given. So back to the sports illustration, the guy shoots the shot, he starts running the other way, he already knows it's in. Or we're in the first five minutes of the game and they're already saying, it's over. This game is done. It's over for you. Well, here, in the midst of the battle, it has been decreed that Nineveh will be exiled, will be carried away, will be stripped, will be no longer. All that will be left are the sobs of these lamenting slave girls. That's all that will be heard from them. And then the battle continues on, and it begins to come to a close in verses 10 through 12. And God taunts Nineveh. Verse 10, desolate. Desolation and ruin. This is a description of your city and the inhabitants of your city. Their hearts will melt. Their knees will tremble. There will be anguish in their loins and their faces all will grow pale. So the Ninevites, who were once the distributors of terror, are now on the receiving end of terror. So this is what's going to happen to you. And the attack continues with an onslaught, a war of words. There is insult added. The text continues in verse 11. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. So in the ancient Near East, the lion would have been a symbol of, of power, of kingship. And so no doubt in Nineveh, there would have been emblems and signs of lions throughout, demonstrating a picture of their power, of Assyria's power and of Assyria's rule. But one, what once was now is no more. What once was now is unrecognizable. So where there used to be prosperity and plenty, 
Now, desolation and ruin. All this happens. Why? Because this battle is personal to God. Verse 13, Nineveh, the Lord of hosts, is against you. Now, think for a moment how scary this is. The, the text gives some light to that for us. It says, for Nineveh, their hearts melt, their, their knees tremble, their loins anguish, their faces turn pale. For the wicked, it is a scary thing to be in the hands of a vengeful God. For the wicked, it is a scary thing to be in the hands of a vengeful God. So Assyria, who is known, notorious for their warfare, they were feared. If judgment from Nineveh, destruction from Assyria was deemed brutal, consider the judgment that would come from a holy God towards sin, towards the wicked. The judgment of Nineveh does not compare to the eternal judgment of the wicked in hell. But who is wicked? I mean, Assyria was notoriously wicked. They should have reason to fear. But who else? Well, if it's the wicked who have reason to fear, it would seem that then the righteous, the opposite of the wicked, the righteous are those who are safe. But there's still concern here because the scriptures in Romans 3 tells us that none is righteous. And in Romans 6, that the wages, the earnings of our unrighteousness, of our sin, is death, is destruction, is a death that comes at the hands of a holy God. He has vengeance stored up for the wicked. And he is a discerning judge. He will not be fooled. He will not be mocked. And he will see to it that what is done is what is right. He will personally see that justice is served. So what does that mean for the, the non-Christian? It means you have reason to fear God. You have reason to fear God's justice. We're told in Nahum 1 that he will by no means clear the guilty. But he's also slow to anger. He's giving you time now to turn from your sin, to turn to him, to trust him, to confess your sin before a holy God and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean, this this personal vengeance of God mean for the Christian? It means we have reason to rejoice. The Lord's been merciful to us, has he not? The Lord has carried out his just wrath on his son, Jesus, on the cross. Now, non-Christian, as I just mentioned, that can be yours too. That can be your reason for rejoicing. And you can rejoice today, and we can rejoice with you today if you would turn from your sin and trust Christ. So, Christian, you have reason to rejoice because of God's personal vengeance. And Christian, you also have reason to be careful, 
and to consider in your own life if there is any injustice that you are aware of, if there is any injustice that you need to bring to God, that you need to make right before him, before God, and then before the offended party. Well, what does this mean for us as a church? To the members of Oakhurst Baptist Church, let me encourage us to remember God's personal commitment to make his bride, the church, pure and holy. He will do this in us. And so, along with him, let us seek to have truth in love, honest and humble conversations, the conversations that we need to have with one another, that we will know what's truly going on with one another, that as we learn things, we speak truth in love to one another, that we may help one another in following Christ, so that together, to the end, we may persevere and endure. So let's identify with one another. Just as the Lord seeks to identify with us, let's take up one another's cause just as the Lord takes up the cause of his people. So that was the first aspect of the Lord's vengeance. It is personal. The second aspect of the Lord's vengeance, the Lord's vengeance on the wicked is powerful. The Lord's vengeance on the wicked is powerful. So we're going to look at verses 3 through 9 as well as verse 13. So we've already seen something of the Lord's power in his personal vengeance. We've mentioned this battle of the mind, that he's wielding power there. But we move here from sort of this, this psychological warfare to a physical war. We move now to the battle of the might. And once again, we'll see that the Lord is personally involved. This passage highlights for us God's control over all things. So he powerfully controls what happens with man, what happens on land, and all that is under his command. He uses all things for his purposes and as he pleases. So let's look at verse 3. In this physical battle, the battle of the might, we see his power over man. In verse 3, God has gathered this army to attack Nineveh. These are mighty men. They are ready for battle. And it would seem that they are experienced in battle. Their shields are red. Their clothes are scarlet, bearing witness to previous bloodshed. The men ride these fortified chariots and carry in hand strong spears. In verse 4, the battle rages and, and races at a frantic pace. The weapons of war shine bright in the sun. They move quickly like a blur. Then in verse 5, the scatterer. We mentioned the Lord himself, ultimately, the commander of this army. He remembers his officers and he carries them along through the wreckage of war until they reach the wall. I do want to note here something of God's complete sovereignty in bringing power over man in bringing about justice. Here the Lord is using an ungodly nation, Babylon, to take out another ungodly 
nation, Assyria. So Assyria had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. That was part of God's judgment for unfaithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness. But God does not need to use us. He calls us to pursue justice, but he can use any man, the faithful, the unfaithful, to bring about justice, to execute judgment. So we see a picture of his sovereign command over the ungodly and even the godly to accomplish his good purposes. Well, the battle then progresses. We see the assistance in battle here of what happens on the land. In verse 6, there is this rising river that runs through the city, and it causes a breach in the city wall. So as was foretold in chapter 1, here now comes to pass in chapter 2. In chapter 1, verse 7, it prophesied that with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. And so the Kozar River is what flowed through Nineveh. And the destruction of Nineveh by God's sovereign hand, his perfect orchestration, aided in the victory of the battle. It sped along victory. The Lord powerfully uses the rising river to defeat Nineveh. In verse 6, we see the, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away. And then in verse 7, God makes a decree. Verse 7, the results are in. Nineveh is ruined, stripped. Verse 8, the people run away. Verse 9, the plunder is taken away. All this was still to happen. Remember, this was a prophecy. But as you read this passage, it's read as though this has already been done. And we mentioned that later it was fulfilled. All this did happen. All this happened as the Lord decreed according to his plan and at the power of his command. So what he decreed in verse 7, he then declares. So he says this is what's going to happen and then he observes this is what's happened in verse 13. Verse 13, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Here he goes on to say what he will do. Burn your chariots. It's interesting, it was the chariots that Nineveh used to persecute and to oppress. But Nineveh would no longer wield power. Devour your young lions. Nineveh would no longer plunder, but be plundered. Cut off your prey and silence the voice of your messengers. Nineveh would no longer feast on their enemies, and their enemies would no longer fear them. What we read in Nahum 2 is Assyria gets the Assyrian treatment. They get poetic justice. And this chapter ends the same way that it starts. The Lord is against Assyria. And while the messengers of Assyria are silenced, we read in there in thir verse 13, the message of the Lord can be heard loud and clear. The message of the Lord is destruction for the wicked, but it is peace for those who turn to him. That is a message hopefully we hear this morning in the midst of hearing destruction for the wicked, peace for the righteous, 
who turn to him. Verse 2, the Lord would personally restore the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. From the line of Jacob and the people of Israel would come a king, King Jesus. And he has come. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, he has declared victory over sin and over Satan. And he is coming again. So we want to be ready. And we want to help one another be ready. And we want to help others get ready. We bear a message of peace for those who turn from sin and trust in Christ. So returning to that opening question, have you been the victim of injustice? I would tell you to take heart because so has Christ. He took on injustice so that he might personally and powerfully oppose the wicked and uphold the righteous. And fellow believers, he calls you and I to do the same. So when someone speaks to you of an injustice, do you have ears to hear? Do you have the heart to help so that people will know to come and speak to you, knowing that as best you're able, you'll act with strong arms and legs to pick them up and carry them, to walk alongside them. Now, no one person in this congregation is able to do all of this. But collectively, we are the body, the body that speaks and hears, that sees, that helps, that serves. And we are to care and care well with the resources that we have been given by Christ. We have a model in God. He personally and powerfully opposes the wicked. And he calls us together to do the same. Let's pray together.